Hello and welcome to the American Scientist Podcast. I'm Robert Frederick. In this special episode, The People versus Tech, How the Internet is Killing Democracy and How We Save It. Two tectonic plates that are crashing up against each other. One is an old democracy built in an analog age and the other is a new technology, digital technology, and they don't work very well together. That's Jamie Bartlett, director of the Center for the Analysis of Social Media, speaking earlier this year with our books editor, Diane Timblin. In this episode, we'll hear two excerpts from Bartlett's book titled The People Versus Tech, How the Internet is Killing Democracy and How We Save It. In the 2016 presidential election, Donald Trump's digital campaign showed how big data and micro-targeting ads, particularly with Facebook, can win votes. Bartlett writes, The continuing evolution of these digital techniques will change the type and style of politicians we elect. And, more importantly, it will mean more power for rich groups to influence elections in ways we don't understand. Here's Jamie Bartlett reading an excerpt on how digital analytics has changed elections. One Sunday afternoon in May 2016, Teresa Hong, a digital communications specialist with several years' experience in political campaigns, was at home in San Antonio, Texas, when her phone pinged. Teresa, this is Brad Pascal. Are you able to write anything? Teresa knew Brad pretty well. Like her, he orbited the city's PR scene. A moderately successful tech entrepreneur from Kansas, Brad had lived in San Antonio since graduating from university in the late 1990s. In 2010, after a few years hustling a living with various digital businesses, he was asked to build a website for Donald Trump's real estate division and impressed his employer with his loyalty and hard work. When Trump declared his bid for the Republican nomination, Brad was drafted in to run the digital campaign. Although the Republican convention wasn't until June 2016, by late April it was increasingly clear that Trump would be the nominee, and Brad was well-placed to work on the presidential campaign too. Brad and Theresa share more than just a profession and right-leaning politics. Both are in their early 40s and slightly punkish. Teresa has a sleeve tattoo, while Brad has a ZZ Top-style beard. More importantly, both are workaholics who answer work-related text messages on a Sunday. Sure, what's the deadline, she replied, while eating enchiladas. A Monday evening or Tuesday. We need to write a digital plan for the campaign. Every political campaign now has a digital plan, it's industry talk that refers to the gurus, content producers, targeted ads and eye-wateringly large numbers that now feature in every election. We'll never replace door-to-door canvassing, which studies find is still the most effective technique to persuade voters, but no one serious runs elections without a digital plan these days. Brad's plan was to make the campaign the most data-driven in history, to take the philosophy of Silicon Valley and apply it to politics. Out with intuition and gut feeling, in with testing, measurement and scientific precision. He knew they would raise less money and have less support from the media or Beltway pundits than the formidable Clinton machine, the likely opponent. 
so he decided he would use data to hack the election. Once the nomination and the contract was secured, Brad's team set up shop in a nondescript San Antonio building just off a busy freeway, intentionally out of the spotlight. He reported to Jared Kushner, who ran the campaign. It started up as four people in a room and Brad saying, make cool stuff, Teresa said later. It grew rapidly and they soon took over the whole third floor of the building, adding cafeteria tables to the large empty rooms. The Republican Party heavyweights moved in, including Gary Coby, head of advertising for the Republican National Convention, the RNC. So did Cambridge Analytica, the UK data analytics firm, who sent 13 staffers, led by Chief Product Officer Matt Oz Okowalski, who had enormous biceps and a habit of walking around the office carrying a golf club. <clears throat> One of the smartest motherfuckers I ever met, Teresa wrote about him later. The department became known as Project Alamo. As the campaign got into full swing, several dozen people, short of sleep and fueled by pizza and Dr Pepper, relentlessly bombarded millions of Americans online with pro-Trump content. It was the largely unseen front line in the most peculiar election in living memory. More than an election, this was an information war. In the final tally of the year 2000 presidential election, George W. Bush edged out Al Gore by just 537 votes in Florida. The margin was that small. In the 2012 election, millions shared on Facebook, I voted. And Bartlett writes that Facebook worked out that friends who saw these I voted posts were themselves slightly more likely to vote as a result. So much so, in fact, that Facebook may have increased turnout by 340,000 people, illustrating that whoever controls information has immense power, and that even small changes in the online environment can be critical. Again, here's Jamie Bartlett reading an excerpt on how digital analytics has changed elections. Facebook, in case you've not been paying attention, is a highly effective mechanism for advertisement delivery because of how finely grained it can target users. One technique in particular, known as lookalike audiences, is highly regarded among those in the know. Both Corbyn and Vote Leave relied heavily on Facebook as a mechanism to reach audiences. But neither used it as much as Brad Pascal did on the Trump campaign. Over the course of the campaign, Alamo spent around $70 million on Facebook advertising, running up to 100 adverts a day and often thousands of versions of each, constantly tweaking to see which version performed best. Brad told CBS in October 2017 that Facebook made the difference, allowing him to reach people who had previously been unreachable. It lets you get to places you'd never get to with TV ads. I have run Facebook adverts myself, 
Back in 2010, I used Facebook to target ads at supporters of radical right-wing political parties in Europe, asking them to fill in a survey for my research organisation, Demos. It's not easy. Big spending clients, therefore, sometimes get help from Facebook directly. Brad told CBS 60 Minutes that he emailed Facebook and Google asking for embedded staff and even insisted that they were Republicans. I want to know every single secret button and click you have, he told them. I want to know everything you tell Hillary's team and then some. Sitting in Alamo, alongside Cambridge Analytica, was seconded staff from Facebook and Google, whose job it was to ensure Trump got the most bang for his buck. I know this because Theresa pointed out where they were sitting and couldn't sing their praises highly enough. Facebook gave us the white glove treatment, she told me as we walked around. They were our hands-on partners as far as being able to utilise the platform effectively. I was surprised when Theresa told me that social media employees and ones who shared the campaign's political views were working directly with the Trump team. But, but perhaps I shouldn't have been. By now, we've all got used to the idea that sophisticated cookies and tracking software follow us around the web. But this isn't only to bombard us with holidays, makeup or jeans. It can be used just as easily to promote politicians. We are put unwillingly and unknowingly into buckets or universes by clever data analysts who obsess over click-through rates and conversion. For campaign managers, we are targets to be hit with political content. We used to call this sort of thing propaganda. Now we call it a behavioural approach to persuasive communication with quantifiable results and give awards to the people who are best at it. Left unchecked, the continued evolution of these techniques will change how we form political choices, what sort of people we elect, and even whether we think our elections are truly free and fair. Modern mass party politics has always been about programmatic offers, broad-based appeals that could build large alliances. This is important, because as the social scientist Francis Fukuyama argues in Political Order and Political Decay, political parties with broad programmes allow citizens with different and varied interests to collectively organise and shape policy. The alternative is squabbling, divisive, special interest groups. And this also helps citizens who are on the losing side accept defeat because they know they might win next time. Big data, however, points to a more personalised model. Work out who people are, find the one thing they care about and zero in on that. Persuasive adverts have always been used in politics. Remember, Labour isn't working. But instead of sending out a mass advert to millions, campaigns can now target a specific set of voters, each with specific promises and pledges based on what they already care about. This is a radical change with far-reaching consequences. It's important that everyone receives the same message, or at least knows what other people are receiving. That's how we are able to thrash out the issues of the day. If everyone receives personalised messages, there is no common public debate, just millions of private ones. 
In addition to narrowing the scope of political debate, and research suggests that candidates are more likely to campaign on polarising issues when the forum is not public, this will also diminish political accountability. Hyperpersonalization incentivizes politicians to make different pledges to different universes of users. But how can we hold anyone to account if there is no clear, single set of promises that everyone can see and understand? And how do we even know if we're getting the real Trump anyway? When I was at Alamo, Teresa told me that she wrote many of Donald Trump's Facebook posts. That was odd. I'd always assumed Trump wrote his own posts. I'd read many of them, and they certainly sounded like him. But nope, it was Teresa, sitting in her San Antonio office. I channeled Mr Trump, she told me, smiling. How do you channel someone like Donald Trump, I asked. Well, a lot of believe me's, a lot of also's, a lot of very's. He was really wonderful to write for. It was so refreshing. It was so authentic. She seemed unaware of the irony. That was Jamie Bartlett reading from his most recent book, The People vs. Tech, How the Internet is Killing Democracy, and How We Save It. You'll find much more about Big Data's emerging role in science and society in the September-October 2018 special issue of American Scientist magazine and online at americanscientist.org. You've been listening to a podcast from American Scientist magazine, published by Sigma Xi, the scientific research honor society. I'm Robert Frederick. Thank you for joining us.